Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're sailing past the century mark talking Excalibur number 101, Quiet, in which things are kind of quiet, but maybe we've earned it and hey, it takes Kurt a full page to put on a shirt and I'm sure we're all thankful for that. Excalibur number 101 was originally published in September 1996 and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Casey Jones on pencils, Tom Simons on inks, Ariane Lenshuk and Matt Hughes on colors. Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney, Jay Gardner, and Dan Hossick on editing. Roll that beautiful email footage. Ooh, a laser disc. The Cheech playing something on a laser disc. Everything is better on laser disc. Whatever happened to the laser disc, laser disc? Welcome back to our onslaught of convos that aren't about onslaught. Excalibur remains on the sidelines of that event, but we're probably better off for it. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard, a person who studies representations of gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture, including at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where I believe Andrew and I are currently maybe starting our unit on Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's Young Avengers series. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I really want to love this one scene with Kurt and Amanda in this comic, and I am just pleading with the world to let me have this just <laughs> let context ruin it i am joined as always by mav how are you unwinding this week eh, i mean it's fine i guess i have nothing really exciting it's weird because like i could have prepared some thoughts for this um for my bit here but then they could have also prepared a story and they didn't so why should I I like this book a lot for a book where literally nothing okay, happens. Okay. Um literally Ooh. nothing of any consequence. <laughs> um but hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I'm did teaching professor of, of digital narrative interactive design at University of Pittsburgh, where I study pop culture and, and comics and, and, and stuff and on this and another podcast called Vox Popcast, where, where our guest, as we record this week, I think two weeks ago, as you listened to this, was, was one Anna Papard. So I haven't talked to you in <laughs> like 24 hours. I've been trying to do, say yes to fewer podcasts lately. I've said no to one recently, which was big for me. Took a lot of courage. <laughs> like Mav texted me like late that day and was like, are you bored? You want to hop on a podcast? And I was like, you know what? Because if I'm coming on your podcast, Mav, that's like just hanging out with friends, yeah. you know? Like that's a delightful experience. I'm always making an exception for you. And, and, to be, and I told the story on the other show, to be fair. Our other guest, John Dorowski, who's been on this show, had, had requested Anna specifically. And I was like, yeah, I'll ask her. And then I didn't because I suck and I just forgot. <laughs> and then I remembered that morning to ask her. And then so I asked her by texting John and saying, hey, Anna, want to come on the show? And then I just and like and then like Anna never answered. And it's like it's been a couple hours. I check it. It's like, oh, because I didn't text her. I texted John, who's already on the show. So that makes no sense. So then it was just like literally like, okay, now I now she's got like an hour's notice because I didn't bother, you know, totally on me. I just spaced out and screwed up and, and you were gracious enough to come on anyway. So thank you. Oh, well, it was lots of fun. Again, hanging out with friends. What's not to like? Um, Andrew, are you feeling the decompression this week? No, I no. defended my doctoral thesis in 20 something, 2010, 2011, 2012. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I, spent, I was like, you did it? I was like, that was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. And then when I finished it, I spent two weeks off uh, in which I just played Mass Effect 2. Yeah. And that was the last time I decompressed. Oh, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no. But... I am Dr. J. Andrew Derman. I am co-project lead of Sequential Scholars and a lecturer at St. Jerome's where I'm entitled to vacation hours that I never take. Oh, Andrew. I know, so I made sad it sad. Now. But you asked me a question that is actually kind of sad when I have to reflect upon it. Jeez, I'm like getting us through a bunch of podcasts so that I can go away next week. So uh, I don't know. Follow my lead, Andrew. You need to take some time off at some point. Okay. Hopefully. Fingers crossed for you. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we have the absolute pleasure of being joined this week by a super smart returning guest who last joined us way back during Inferno as one of our first guests. At that time, I believe she coined a new catchphrase for the pod. We are absolutely delighted to welcome back Laura Grafton. Hello, Laura. Hi, everyone. So happy to be back. Thanks for coming back. I can't believe that you were our third ever guest Laura going back and looking at it and realizing that I was like oh wow we really have been doing this for a while but that makes it well past time for us to have you back I'll refresh the listeners about what you get up to and then we'll we'll chat with you a little bit more amazing Laura Grafton is an independent scholar and freelance writer who studied comics at the University of Waterloo. Laura has published with The Middle Spaces and Women Write About Comics, focusing on female lead, queer and domestic violence survivor stories in comics and other pop culture. We'll, of course, link some of your writing in our show notes. Uh, now, Laura, we already did your origin story way, way back in our episode about Excalibur number six. People should go back and listen to that if they didn't. I remember that episode just being a ton of fun. So we won't do that again. Instead, we will catch up with you a little bit i think you got some projects and stuff going on any like of those or life updates in general you want to catch us up on i do have so much going on and have had a lot going on in the past it's been like two years which is wild especially in pandemic time like that's like two lifetimes <laughs> at least i know um so i'm actually coming off a rather decompressing weekend uh ended up in toronto with my partner and saw a bunch of live music over the weekend which was absolutely nice. amazing one of my favorite ways to decompress. I have also been spending the last year working on a Harley Quinn thesis that's rough draft is due the day that this is going to be airing. So while you are oh listening God. to this, everyone, I am very nervously handing in a document that is probably way too many pages over word count to the lovely Andrew for his critique and criticism of the rough draft before I solidify things. And that thesis is focusing on the ways in which Harley Quinn has really been co-authored by both the audience and the creators over the years, and the ways in which things like fan fiction and social media have played into that development and creating a really unique trauma, queer, feminine survivor story that uh, really plays into something a little more real than we get in a lot of other mediums and a little bit more interactive and able to grow and change. So that's been all of my life for the past year or so. It's been so oh great. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm happy that it looks like you're hopefully going to be able to decompress a little bit more. Although now I'm like, oh, this is yeah. impacting Andrew's ability to decompress. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the two of us have like a date to go paddleboarding and really decompress hey, with everything yeah. handed in and done. So, right. you know, like full day, full day paddleboarding decompression. He's got to relax no. at some point during that, I'm sure. We're doing that with kids. There's no way. <laughs> oh Nothing yeah. is calm with children on a boat. I, 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 mean, I, I was just going to say, you, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's awesome, Laura. I'm so excited about that. I hope I get to read some of that at some point. Definitely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was was a little bit about the era of comics that we're reading. So you last joined us for a very different era of this comic book and absolutely do not expect you to have read all of the intervening issues. Why would you do that to yourself unless you were hosting a podcast on the subject? But I was interested to get your sort of general impressions about does this still feel like the same comic book that you encountered way back in Excalibur number six or does it feel like just a completely different animal? It feels 
so different. Like it, yeah. the one I encountered originally was very like pre the era of me actually starting to pick up comics. It came out before I was born. It was very like newspapery and like dot art and whatever, right? Like in the the whole like printing and stuff was just a different vibe. Whereas this one is like came out exactly when I started to pick up comic books, mm-hmm. and it's got that whole like glossy feel with the like smooth imagery and everything that you start to see around that time and the like deeper colors and kind of more intricate stuff but it's like less detailed and that more like bare minimum to some degree outlines and things unless you actually need the full detail but in like a very like this this is nostalgia comics for me kind of way like it's it's what a comic should be Oh, yeah, no, I get that. Well, so you were reading comics around this time, which I should remember, because as I said, we did do your comics origin story, but Lori, it was two years ago. I have no memory of it. So you were reading a lot of comics around this time then. Yeah, yeah, this would have been around the time that I started digging through the comics bins that um, my mom's friend's son had. And he was a couple years older than me and reading stuff like this all the time and Spider-Man as well. And anytime we were over there while our moms were hanging out, it was like in the basement playing with Legos and digging through the comic bins and debating which X-Men was the best and (laughs) arguing about Batman stuff like just just great time other than the art is there anything about sort of the tone of the book that feels familiar or is it the same response does it just not feel like the same book at all I'm just so curious about somebody who is like sort of coming in at such two different points it felt like a lot more I'm gonna say innuendoed than the other did like both through the art and also the wording like there the whole thing Excalibur is is sex farce vibes and that's just what it is but there there's something about the way that it's done here where everything is just a little bit more comical and less serious about the way it's innuendoed from like Nightcrawler like pinching the base of the very phallic phone while he's having like the argument with Brian to <laughs> like the like full page that it takes Nightcrawler to put on his shirt which just shouldn't like I really want to know what dryer sheets he's not using to get so much static cling <laughs> that it takes like a solid five minutes walk across the room, sit down on the couch, and his shirt still hasn't fallen. Like that defies gravity and the laws of physics. I don't get it. <laughs> must be, it must be a fur thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's <laughs> static cling. <laughs> he needs some dryer sheets. That's all I gotta say. Fair, fair. On his body. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. For all we know, he's smelling like brimstone all the time. I don't know. <laughs> These important questions have not been established. I want to get deeper into your first impressions. So let's do the issue summary and I'll come straight back to you with it. And we'll start digging into some of the domestic texture of this issue. Because despite Mav's comments earlier, which were a mix of good and bad, I think most of us have some positive things to say about this one. So I have some I really... positive things to say. <laughs> I just said said they didn't think too hard about it. I don't think it's bad. I think it's nothing happens in this book. (laughs) Explicitly nothing happens. The issue is called quiet. Anyway, let's do the issue summary and then... I'll get those first impressions from everybody right after that. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. Even if we had super strength, we'd definitely never carry you by your belt buckle if you had a broken leg. Just to prove how helpful and respectful we are, we bequeath upon you a plot summary. Excalibur number 101 opens in the wake of the Devil Under London affair and in the midst of the onslaught event across the pond. The team arrives back at Muir Island where Moyer McTaggart is stewing in a secret underground crypt listening to a voice recording of Professor Charles Xavier saying if she's hearing his message, he's gone mad and Moyer his best friend, quotes, must carry on the dream of peaceful coexistence between mutants and humans in his stead. Moira has to break the onslaught news to the banged-up Excalibur, who are suitably upset. Kurt initially vows to head straight to the U.S. to help their friends, but Moira puts her foot down, saying the American teams are all handling it the best they can, and Excalibur are all staying here since everyone is wounded or exhausted. Well, wounded and exhausted, more appropriately. And so, wounds are tended to as exposition unfolds. Black Air has been resoundingly defeated, and Alastair Stewart tells Rory Campbell that he has been assigned to be the director of a new paranormal division incorporating the former Who, Black Air, and other agencies, and he would like Rory to come work with him as mutant liaison and management. He's just so qualified for that job. Love that for him. Rain and Doug have a moment in there somewhere as well with Rain acknowledging he's not Doug and that's okay. I'm sure this issue is now totally resolved. Later, the team canoodles on the couch watching various news reports on the events in New York, trying to come to terms with what's happening. There's another attempt to get involved in the event until Moira puts her foot down 
second time, telling them they're the last outpost of Xavier's dream. They have a responsibility to him to stay alive. With Moira's powerful words, the world goes quiet and the night gets darker. So Laura, I said we were coming right back to you first, and that is exactly what we're doing. What were your first impressions of this particular comic? Let's get into a little bit more. So I personally, unlike Mav, love a decompression issue where nothing happens because I actually think it's kind of where everything happens. Like you get these moments of seeing how superheroes deal with everything that's unwinding around them when they come off of a battle when they have no idea what to do next, which is really the case here. And taking that moment to regroup, I think, gets you a lot of really great character moments. And even just kind of the panel as the team gets back home and you're looking through and you're getting all these little like history pieces about the relationships that they had to Professor X that you maybe did not know before and get more grounding and understanding about the way they might want to move forward, what their motivations might be. You kind of understand why Nightcrawler is looking to go in for a fight, which is not usually his role. He's usually a lot more level-headed on the team. But knowing that he's just like this heart of the X-Men and his relationship with Professor X and everything brings you to a point where you know that he's going to want to go in for the kill and not be thinking as rationally, be a little bit more unstable. And I think it gives you that kind of like background piece to understand what's happening next and then like I, I called the art kind of like more simplistic and smooth but also in the simplicity and the smoothness of it it means that when they do put in details like it just draws the eye more so like Moira's glasses have these little like heart shaped like tear shaped heart shaped waves on the bottom of them and even though we don't ever really see her cry it just like gives the impression of these constant tears in her eyes the whole time that really draw you in and the bandaging on <laughs> various suits and body pieces and everybody is just like you know so much goes into like the little details when they matter but then when they don't matter it's just like this cleaner look to it and I just absolutely adore it Aww, I'm so glad that you like this issue yeah I was sort of like I'm really fond of this issue too so I'm so happy we could have you back for it um I'll pick up some first impressions on the rest of the team and we'll we'll get into the domestic texture of this a little bit more Andrew I know you already said that you like this issue as well how are you feeling yeah, I, I definitely like this one. I think we're, we're again seeing Ellis starting to do stronger and stronger character work um, within the group dynamic. I, I find also the degree of difficulty very, very high because he's spending a lot of his time apologizing for Marvel editorial, yeah. making a decompression issue take place during a major mm-hmm. crossover event. And, like, that's rough, man. That That's tough for him to have to do. And he does okay with it. I don't think anybody could do good with it. Like, the Moyer speech at the end isn't bad. It doesn't make any sense, but it isn't, <laughs> it isn't bad. Um, so no, I, I think there's a lot to appreciate here. And I, I think there's also um, a couple, two or three places where I find that Ellis really punctuates, for me at least, the meaning of his run on Excalibur. Oh, yeah. Like there's the, um, the scene where he talks with Kitty and Peter. And they emphasize this this distinction between the childlike romance of Kitty Peter and the adult romance between Kitty and Pete Wisdom. And that's a perfect reflection of what Ellis contributed to Kitty Pride in this era. Um, so I, I really like those things. I, I think there's good character moments, but also good things to kind of um, reflect on as creative peaks for, for Warren Ellis uh, as a young writer struggling to find his way on a book that he inherited that he did a half decent job on. <laughs> Damning with fate praise. <laughs> Yeah, a <laughs> candid compliment. Uh, anyway, Mav, let's come to your first impressions. I mean, do you like it or hate it? Or do you find it frustrating? Okay, so frustrating. And here's why. Laura made a comment that, like, you said, unlike Mav, except that what you said that you liked about it, anybody who listens to the show a lot or my other show might realize that you you mentioned one of my favorite things about comics. I love a decompression issue. My favorite comics are the ones where the (laughs) X-Men, the Avengers, the Titans, the Defenders, whoever, sit around and play baseball or go swimming or have a picnic. Or like I said, the best episode of superhero television ever is the episode of the Defenders where they all have dinner in a Chinese restaurant. That's what I want to see. I I like when nothing happens. (laughs) Now, the difference is when that usually happens it's in service of a greater story 
that the author of the piece is like situating his characters and developing, you know, who they are in this world so that we can see where they fit into this greater picture. And I think Ellis wants to do that here. The problem is X-Men Onslaught, the crossover of which this is a of which this is a part, is not a book that I believe Warren Ellis was let in on the plotting of or even what the resolution would be. Yeah. This reads very much like he was told, OK, I need you to do a crossover issue, but you don't get to hang out in any of the secret meetings where we do where we are doing the plotting. He doesn't know what's going on from their perspective. They're watching this unfold on the news. And it's the most generic news broadcasts ever. Well, the X-Men and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are fighting somebody somewhere. And, you know, it's real bad. And there, there's like <laughs> there's very little context because I'm pretty sure when um, Ellis is writing this. Uh, well, certainly when Ellis is writing it, probably when Casey Jones is drawing it, I don't think they know what is there to be drawn and if you think about the last couple of issues where we had that crossover where onslaught is like doing the psychic link with the red queen and nothing ever comes of it because they weren't they, because they clearly weren't let in on the process so like that's my problem with it it feels like nothing can progress that matters because excalibur as always is the redheaded stepchild that no one cares about it's just out there you know now what happens like i love the moments this is where where I'm, I'm an alice apologist i like what ellis was trying to do like ellis has a very clear characterization of who kitty pride is going to be as Andrew just pointed out he has a very clear characterization of who colossus is going to be who pete wisdom is going to be um not so much brian and megan but he's trying he is yeah. trying and he absolutely knows who he wants Amanda and, and Kurt to be. And there's an attempt to kind of get people there, uh, Rain and Doug as well. Now, I know it's never going to happen because I know the future because I don't live then. I live now. But I appreciate that he's trying to do something. It's just that, like, it's so obvious to me reading this, and I think it was then as well, where the stumbling blocks are. Like, reading this back in 1996, it felt like you don't know what's going on in this crossover, like at all. And it was very obvious to me that he he wasn't going to have it. Now, I also have a storyline convention that will a storyline problem that we'll talk about later, which um, which might be very much drawn from the fact that he doesn't know what's going on. But like that creates a, ma a major break in the characters for me. But I feel like he's doing his best with what he was frankly given a raw deal by editorial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like, I think you can see that. But I also think that he's almost leaning into it in a positive way that makes to me this story feel so much more human, because it reminds me of any time like pre cell phone era, when something like bad was going down in the world, and you have the newscast starting to trickle in, but nobody knows 100% of what's going on yet. Mm -hmm. And as much as without the full spectrum of information, he can't necessarily draw what he's supposed to be drawing or do any of those things, or even necessarily connect it back to the rest of the crossover in the arc properly. And you can definitely tell that he's missing some information. He's leaning into that separation and that chaos element that these moments of trauma create in the real world. And you get those feelings of, <clears throat> people who just are not knowing what to do without a hundred percent of the information coming through and the camaraderie that kind of gets created from that of the fear of the unknown in these kind of like group settings. And I think that given all of that and given everything, like it's, it, it adds to some of what he's doing with the relationship piece, in my opinion, as much as it might not be the ideal crossover or the ideal decompression, it might not properly build to something else due to editorial issues or anything else, lack of information. But I think that given, given the scenario, it, it contributes to the story as best it can. Yeah, I actually really agree with you, Laura. I think that's part of what sort of drives my interest in this issue is that, I mean, I don't know how self-conscious this is, but it does feel metatextual in terms of the characters are sort of mirroring our position being on the outside of the onslaught event 
as readers of Excalibur, right? And I don't know, I think that kind of brings us closer into their world and it kind of brings me closer into, into identification with the characters because they're frustrated too, right? Mm-hmm. They're like mm-hmm. voicing all these frustrations about the situation and how they can't go there, but that they're going to make the most of it. And the way that they're going to make the most of it is by re-solidifying the emotional bonds that they have with each other. <laughs> so I actually think it's quite deftly handled for what it is. Although I also take your point, Mav, like the news report scene is dumb. I mean, Casey Jones doesn't even draw anything in the background because he doesn't know what to draw. And like, I know. totally yeah. take your point there. Yeah, yeah and it's not, and it's not, it is not the fault of anyone who actually worked on this issue. It is 100% the fault of, and I mean, I guess Bob Harris, because he's editor-in-chief at the time, and he should have stepped in and said, no, for cohesiveness across the line, the Excalibur team needs to know what the X-Men team is doing because the Avengers crossovers at this time dealt with it correctly because they had to be in on the fight. So it, there's, there's a weird politicking thing that I think is happening in the background that is showing up in the work. And then we'll also talk, you know, talk to some at the end about where Marvel is as a company is just utter chaos in 1996. Like they're doing, to be fair, the, the ship is sinking and everybody's doing the best they can. So I get it, but it's, uh, to me, I can just I can just see the cracks, and it's and it's yeah. hard for me to it's hard for me to ignore them. And part of it's future sight, right? Like I know where things go, and and <laughs> and and so it's really hard to go. It's really hard to not go. Oh, okay, so that's where you guys were. You you know, he clearly just seriously does not know what's going to happen next month, and he yeah. sure as hell doesn't know what's going to happen in three months. Well, yeah. And I mean, Ellis knows he's leaving this book at this point, too. I'm very sure. Yeah. And so, yeah. How much does he also? Yeah, that's a good point. How much does he care <laughs> at this point? Like, he's probably done. You know, I'm sure he's frustrated given yeah. the creative direction. Yeah. And yet, despite that, I think he's still kind of trying to wrap up this run surprisingly yeah. effectively. I mean, despite mm-hmm. the rushness of like some of the stuff leading up to this. But let's break down some of the domestic aspects of this a little bit more because we love talking about domestic texture on this pod. I mean, that mm-hmm. was one of the things that I was curious about whether, Laura, you would feel that as a similarity with that earlier issue of Excalibur you read. Because although this is so different, I think that that's part of what draws me to it, too. It sort of feels like circling back to the beginning at the end of Ellis run to have such a domestic issue with I don't know as you were saying you know Casey Jones does very simplified kind of backgrounds and stuff sort of the character faces and poses are more his deal but still the details that we do get are so I don't know so lovely in terms of sort of setting scenes for the context of these characters and it makes me wish that we'd had more of this throughout the run like I wish that we'd seen Kurt's room before now when Ellis has only got two (laughs) issues left on this book because there's so much going on in like a page like this and I mean I could talk about this page in depth but you know we got his swords on the wall we have like Robin Hood and Captain Blood we have I think Crimson Pirate on maybe like a laser disc (laughs) 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 which is amazing and so period specific and yeah this is like the first time (laughs) I'm not I literally I can literally see my laser disc collection from where I'm sitting right now and yeah I got a laser disc collection (laughs) jealous jealous my ex used to have like one of those mini disc players and man that thing felt like the future so cool I mean it's the stuff of the first Mission Impossible movie how could it not feel cool but um (laughs) I also love that he has like a stuffy of himself sitting on the couch like like how that's that's how you get laid that's there that's there for content Oh yeah, Laura. Laura, do you know the history of this doll? No, I don't. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's his written articles God. on it. Yes, no. That is, that is there so that he can get laid. That's what that's there for. Okay. <laughs> it awesome. Is. So, so this doll first appears in Uncanny X Men number one sixty eight from what's the date on that one? I should know off the top of my head. Eighty two, maybe. Yeah, eighty two, mm, roughly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking 82. Anyway, it appears in a scene in which Kurt strikes the Burt Reynolds from Cosmo pose, though with his clothes on, unfortunately, and has the doll positioned in front of his genitals as he's greeting Amanda. <laughs> yes, I was not apartment. joking. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. I love that. <laughs> and there's been another, presumably a different doll that's like changed hands because Kitty also has one, which is a little bit confusing, but still the one that Kitty is exchanged and- between Kurt and Amanda is very much has sexual implications <laughs> right but yeah there's also one yeah kitty and baby Ilyana and jubilee have an mm-hmm. which I, I i just i do 
I need to believe that it is a separate doll. Yes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that they give to the six-year-old to sleep is a different <laughs> doll than the one that they use as a sex toy. Yes. <laughs> and it's yeah. called a Banff doll and having it here in this domestic scene with them. A-plus callback. Love every single yes. bit of it. I sincerely hope it was in the script. If not, all props to Casey Jones for putting it here in the scene. Love it. But yeah, I thought we could talk about of these other little domestic moments and I thought maybe I'd just like let everybody pick one that they wanted to talk about because we could go through them in order but I'm assuming we'll be interested in different ones and I obviously want to talk about the skirt one a little bit more but we can maybe come back to it in we a second but I'll come to you. well yeah we can start with it because I know Laura wants to talk about it too so let's just talk about it a little bit okay I love this scene like so 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 much <laughs> and some of the reasons we already talked about I already talked about you know the way we get a sense of his personality and their history through something like the Banff doll right I also love the styling of the characters in the scene they're both in their casual clothes and that feels very naturalistic we don't always get that in superhero comics and the thing with him putting on the shirt i mean it's funny you know it's giving us like <laughs> a little nightcrawler exploitation i'm always in favor of that but again that's such a beautiful domestic detail right you can imagine these two people who are so comfortable with each other having this moment together in part because of that right the messiness of him awkwardly putting on his shirt as they're talking and still putting it on as they share this really touching really realistic seeming hug it's not this like staged awkward kiss it's this really sweet and again very naturalistic hug that you might have between two people in this situation and it feels very real to me just everything about this scene feels very real to me and then every time i like tweet this scene or talk about it someone's always like well it'd be nice if it wasn't his foster sister and i was like you know i know I know, okay? Don't come at me like I don't know, but... <laughs> Yeah. But I don't care. It's a beautiful scene. I like the dialogue between them. I think Kurt is too forgiving of her and should probably ask her some more questions. But you know, that's his character. It's fine. He wouldn't. He, wouldn't. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, he is. I mean, as a character flaw, he is too forgiving of mm -hmm. her and should be asking more questions. But I absolutely believe that the character, the character that is Kurt at this point in his development does not ask those questions. The character that is Kurt at this point in his development lets it sit awkwardly for the worse. Anyway, the touchability of Kurt in this scene is just mm -hmm. next level. I love it to pieces, but I don't know. Laura, I know you like this scene as well, so if you've got if you've got oh. more thoughts about it, go ahead. I was so I was so thrilled. Like the second I saw the scene, I'm like, yes, this is like I want this issue. Amazing. But yeah, like I, I think it's so interesting how it's this very natural, very weird moment that's like happening alongside what just seems so comical because the only thing I can think the entire time I'm watching Kurt struggle to put this shirt on is it reminds <laughs> me of the like memes that went really viral like a decade ago where it was like guys that were posing in like the same positions that girls pose in in advertising <laughs> where they're like struggling to get shirts on or struggling <laughs> to shovel or whatever right like half naked and I'm like they're having such a genuine lovely moment and I can't help but laugh at the ridiculousness of the fact that he can't get his shirt on and we just get to ogle his abs the whole time because you know he's like metal goth boyfriend vibes and why wouldn't you sit there ogling his ass um, well and even the hug at the just, end you know like his body is yeah. blocking off her body so that we can see his abs and she's behind him <laughs> right like it's like it's the entire opposite of what you would expect in a scene like this of what you get in a lot of superhero comics where you get a scene like this and then it's all boob with the guy behind right and it's kind of the whole reverse of that and it's both lovely and whimsical at the exact same time and then i also love how in the next like on the next panel brian's got his abs covered but is all like biceps out and it's just like yep between the two of them we just get like some really awesome dude ogling happening and like I, it's not exactly what you would get in most other comic runs but you get it here and i'm here for it <laughs> Love it, love it. God, I just love that Kurt and Amanda hug. I don't know. I just, the way she's like clinging to him, I'm like, oh, that's me at those times in my life when I've really needed Kurt in my life. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Andrew, any scenes in particular that, that you have a particular affection for in this issue, or if you have thoughts about this one too, go for it. Sure. Um, 
one's not really a scene because there, there is a Duggan Rain scene, but the, the uh, scene that I kind of liked earlier was actually a shot. It's when they first come back and they've got Doug in the towel. And we, and we were talking about sort of the male gaze a second ago in, in Laura's analysis here, but like that idea of, um, I forget the illustrator did this all the time, the Birds of Prey guy who was just like, I'm going to have a butt in literally every panel. <laughs> and, and you get this, this cute little shot of Doug Locke and rain and it's a total booty shot of the two of them together and i don't know what went through my brain except for some reason i thought it was cute that they were being sexualized together from behind the camera it was a weird <laughs> Andrew, that really stood out to moment. me as well <laughs> okay good i'm not super weirdo uh, and then the other one that's maybe useful to talk about is the scene where um brian basically validates warren ellis's entire project on excalibur with his his yeah it's revealed that wisdom saves the entire timeline and thus the metaphorical or perhaps literal climax of warren ellis's bizarre excalibur self-insertion fantasy is fulfilled (laughs) and i don't know why but that seemed kind of appropriate to me and like the look on wisdom's face i immediately interpreted as as what ellis's face must have been doing the entire time he was writing that Oh my god that is amazing it didn't occur to me in that context as i was reading it this time but you're absolutely right <laughs> like this is why you were so essential to this timeline pete me captain britain <laughs> the character who's been a lot around like in this particular universe the longest is validating this i get it but it also reminds me of like the way you would condescend a child and say you know mm-hmm. what buddy you have the biggest job of all you get yeah. to without you Oh my god it's so true oh my god i love that yeah the the rain and doug shot really stood out to me as well because that is a very romantic sexual pose and shot of the two of them and there's a lot going on there connotatively in terms of his mm-hmm. implicitly naked though not really since he's not human you know body made up of circuit boards and then her furry body wrapped around his body made up of circuit boards and that does get my super sex interested brain firing in terms of the contrast between those bodies and some of the gender play that always goes on when reigns in her werewolf form so yeah, yeah that was an interest- that, 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 that interested so. me yeah <laughs> i'm gonna want to come no, back go, to ahead, go just, ahead well there was well i just yeah sure i don't like that part i don't like that doug forgets that he can create clothes doug doesn't wear clothes uh, yeah. he's a shapeshifter who it just I, doug Locke, i should say it's weird because i guess he's naked because he wants to be he just sort of i mean like i am i to believe that he just like they they sewed his head back onto his body or whatever because remember he was just the head when they found him but between issues and then he has created a naked body for himself so that they are forced to presumably look at penis for the entire flight home i i, I mean i'm not sure what's going on there and it's like oh you have a personality and I, like, I feel like i missed some issues and Ellis just knows that he's running out of time. So, you know, he's just got to look, we're skipping ahead to the end of this Douglock story because I need to I need him to be where I need him to be. And that's that's the one that works least for me. I like that he's trying to do something interesting. I just feel like there needed to be a Douglock issue before this that there that does not exist in order for me to buy into where he's trying to go. I also like Andrew, I I hate the Brian say, saying telling Pete wisdom. All you have to do is say I love you. The power was in you all along. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I I also read it as Ellis going, and I am the most important person in the universe. The way Andrew did, and it rubbed me the wrong way instead of the right way. So that was my 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 drawback with those two scenes. But overall, just finishing up this decompression thing. What I like about this issue is that everybody couples off in various, you know, romantic Mm -hmm. and non-romantic pairings, and we get to see the individual relationships. I think some of them are like, I agree with the Kurt and Amanda one. I love it. I we've talked about it on the show before. I like Kurt with Amanda, our friends at um, um, Simply Amazing, the Nightcrawler podcast. I went on there to defend it. Um, Hostile audience. (laughs) 
<laughs> love you guys but uh, but um but like i i i actually i am perfectly okay i don't care that they are foster siblings i think in the context of the story that's being told i like them as a couple so i really enjoyed what was happening here i enjoyed where kitty and peter end up even though you have to do some comic booky hand waviness in order to get there but i like um i like that they're acknowledging look we were childhood sweethearts even though peter was technically legal when they met he was 18 you know and she's like 13 and it's 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 old enough to be creepy but he's still not he's not a real grown-up he's a technical grown-up right so they're acknowledging that look we had this thing we were kids you've grown up i promise to not beat up any more of your boyfriends it's a cute moment it kind of loses something in that this is not just a fight between a couple of dudes he collapsed his lung and almost killed him you know, like, like, so, like, I don't know that you can really forgive him, but it's a comic booky world, so, you know, fine. I like that Megan and Brian are trying to have some kind of personality beyond this. I love that Rain and Douglock are trying to have the beginnings of a relationship where she acknowledges that he's not Doug. Like, every, every part of this feels like we are moving these characters along it just feels also like i'm rushing this because i have two issues left in my run and i need them to be there so that's so there's good and bad and that's my flaw with it yeah i'm gonna defend the rain and doug block thing a little bit in that i don't know there's a lot of gaps here but it's the type of gaps that excite me because it can feel like a skirting the code thing a little bit because the vibe that I get from them coming back from this is that they've been through this traumatic life-changing thing and had one of those moments where you become closer emotionally and physically through the trauma of that and they're walking back into mm -hmm. a calmer world now and suddenly the openness that they have with each other is not allowed anymore and he's got to put clothes on and they got to go back to normal right and i really got that vibe from the visual depiction of the characters the way they are so much closer here and then get distanced by clothes being added to them and their posture with each other's well i feel like they feel distanced when they go for the walk on the beach compared to again oh. that very intimate sexual pose that they have when they're arriving at muir island which is just i mean that's a post-coital pose i mean that is such an oh, intimate yeah. hug with her I, arm no, I, around I his there. waist and yeah but i don't read the i don't read them as distant I, I i agree that it's got you know it's got the sexual intimate tone to it which is a big step for it's a big step for where ellis thinks rain is like she had already progressed there in the latter days mm -hmm. of new units and and in x factor but where the way he'd been writing her it's a bit it's a big change i just don't see them as going backwards when like like i read there he's wearing the awkward suit as and now we're gonna go on a date you know we you know we're gonna be grown-ups and we're gonna try to make this thing happen us crazy kids we're gonna make a go of it like it didn't feel awkward to me in a we're distant it the, the date felt intimate to me as well because it's like it felt like a okay we're gonna go out and we're gonna try to do this for real kind of thing so i didn't read that as them as as regression at all yeah i don't think i've read it as character regression but just that sense of like they totally would have just had battlefield sex but now they're back in the real world so they have to put on clothes and go on a date and be awkward you know what i mean yeah, like, yeah and it doesn't help that the clothes are like so oversized yeah. too like yes. it just the whole thing there's awkwardness that reads into it that isn't there in the original scene where they're both exactly. like essentially naked right yeah That's because fair. they just seem uh, so connected to each other in that one image one place i do read it as regressive of, of the previous journey of the characters but i think this was already gone by the time ellis took over um was the way that it's sort of heteronormative for two characters who were iconic of mlw and wlw relationships respectively mm -hmm. and i especially mm -hmm. hate when you have characters like that pair up with each other mm -hmm. you know what i mean so it's like a two for one um so i don't love that but as i said it was already gone. Like, 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 Liefeld had, had, you know, stomped all over that already at this point. Um, I'm so, a little more forgiving of it because yeah. I've always read both of them as bi. Neither of them, I don't think either of them is gay. I think that really, I, I think, oh yeah, yeah, no, very, very explicitly because even in the early New Mutants days, or, or not early, the mid New Mutants days before Doug dies, Doug is to me very clearly in love with both rain and warlock in different ways 
to where I I don't think of him as explicitly gay. He is queer and bi, and I think that I think that particularly in code era, as hard as bi is, I mean, it's hard as hard as gay is. Yeah, to do, how do you um, without coding? Right? I think I think bi is extremely difficult to where you have mm-hmm. to like the work that Claremont does in order to make Storm explicitly bisexual is so much work over the course of like 10 years to get like it's a it's and and even then people are still like no no her and yukio are just friends and it's like really so (laughs) i think uh so same thing with rain i think rain has a very definite interest that she's not ready to deal with with danny but also is explicitly crushing on at varying times both sam and uh, and cypher in what i believe are genuine ways that are colored by her being sexually confused but i don't think it's as easy as saying she's just lesbian to me and it never has been i've always read both of them as bi like i think their relationship interest in each other by the time doug dies is genuine and just they're two confused kids in the late 80s (laughs) yeah i mean that's just one of those subjective things i mean like you know my extremely subjective headcanon for wanting to enjoy this is just like especially again in this image with like his textures of machine and her texture of fur sort of merging in this intimate pose i'm like i want to read them both as gender fluid characters like Mm -hmm. united in their fluidity and that's not where this is going but again when i want to insert what's missing here that's what i want from an image like that Mm -hmm. but um let's talk about some of the other scenes and i'll give you a chance to pick another one laura was there was there another scene or panel or page from this comic or interaction with with some characters in this issue that particularly interested you so i absolutely adored not necessarily the content of the newscast but the imagery that we get when the group is sitting watching the news because you have night crawlers kind of like skin color carried throughout the jeans and pants of most of the women and all of them are having this very emotional reaction to what's going on and then you have the dudes all kind of like dressed all in white being very stoic very distant not necessarily even directly interacting with the television in a lot of cases or very distracted from what's going on and you just kind of see both in the body language but also the coloration the emotional output versus like this stoic I'm gonna like pretend like it's all okay bottle it up not show my emotions moment which I just love seeing displayed through the art like this especially when there isn't necessarily a lot going on in terms of actual communication actual words oh that's lovely yeah I've found myself thinking a lot about the way different characters hold different characters in this issue like Kurt's got his arm all the way around the front of Amanda wrapped all the way around his shoulders like just like sort of a hanging on for dear life pose that speaks to that big moment that they just had right this big moment of connection Mm -hmm. that seems like it's going to move their relationship forward that's not going to happen because of writer changes that are going to happen on this book and stuff but based on the previous scene that seems like where they're going you know they've never felt closer is the actual caption box that we get right and then the pose that Kitty and Pete have you know her kind of leaning on him shows her comfort with him but it's a little bit more of a power pose. She's a bit less wrapped up in him. Brian, of course, is injured, so he wouldn't be hugging Megan anyway, but the way that she's sort of hunched up forward in her seat. I mean, I could go either way about this depiction of Megan. I don't think we've arrived at somewhere with this character that I understand, but at the same time, the body language communicated there is what it is, right? I mean, If I put you over my shoulder and carry you there, Brian Braddock, I will. Yeah, that's something she'd say. Sure. Sure, but I can see where he's where they're going with this pose in terms of this characterization of Megan, whatever it is. You know, she's looking very pensive, and and you know, it reflects the way that this character is sort of becoming more of a powerhouse on the team and less less attached to Brian in effect. And she's literally less attached to Brian than Amanda is attached to Kurt, and that Kitty is attached to Pete. So I think that that's significant that they've done it that way. Whether I like it or not is beside the point. But yeah, all of those little sort of gestures of intimacy between the characters in this issue it just made me wish that we'd had a little bit more of this slow burn character building throughout and we hadn't Mm -hmm. you know had like five issues in a row of this being like the pete wisdom show 
which <laughs> now I'm mad about because I was like, we could have had this, you know, like, why did it take him so many issues to get his characterization of Nightcrawler working? We could have had this earlier and it's frustrating to me. But at the same time, when I, when I have like fond thoughts about this run of comics, this is definitely one of the issues I think about. And this issue occupies maybe like a larger space that it should in my mind as representative of this run because there's so much depth to the emotional and domestic landscape of this particular issue but um i don't know let's go around and do some final thoughts uh because mm. i know we want to talk about heroes reborn a little bit at the end so we'll give ourselves a chance to do that and we can we can keep picking scenes from the issue as our final thoughts if we want but i'll give you a chance to start first andrew anything you would like to circle back to or bring up that we haven't got a chance to talk about enough yeah just briefly justice for alistair stewart who <laughs> ellis has not yeah. liked at all since yeah. he brought him back but that was a cool character we've talked about him before there was some really interesting stuff done with him in the claremont davis era especially at one point in this comic he's clearly colored as rory yes uh, i was that was a note the distinction I don't think Arian Linshock, the colorist, knew that there were two people in the book because yeah. not only they're is in the room together at one point. Yes. And also, like in the scene where they're talking, where he gets the phone call and Kurt has to bring him the phone, they say Alistair's name like four times to keep reminding you. Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that was done in, the, I'm pretty sure this was colored and then the letters were done and it's like, Alistair. Alistair, Alistair, because you're because otherwise the readers will think that you're Rory because you're got a yellow shirt on and you've got his characteristic streak in your hair, which is colored the wrong color. Like that's Rory, and they did no favors. <laughs> like, like I, I'm, I'm certain that was done after the fact because they say phone call for Alistair Stewart in both letters. Yeah. You, you, Alistair Stewart. Yeah, no. yeah. Yeah, that was a note of mine too. <laughs> I know. I I kept thinking that there was going to be something else going on with Alistair because there was sort of the suggestion that he might not be totally with it, you know, that he might be imagining the conspiracy, but no, it turns out he was just completely sane and there's actually nothing interesting going on with him whatsoever. And I mean, I feel like that's probably just one of those narrative balls that got dropped, but Anyway, I'm glad that he gets the phone call from the prime minister and everything's good from him. And I'm sure everything will just be nothing but wine and roses from him for the rest of his life. I can only assume uh, Rory as well, presumably. But, you know, at least there's an attempt to give these characters a future. I don't know. I'm trying. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. Where, at what point did I got totally lost? Was that Andrew's final thought or was that your final thought, Mav? I think it was, was my Andrew's, start of a final thought. Yeah, I'm Matt sorry, I didn't mean to like interrupt. Ran it off continue. the road like fast and yes. furious stuff. Sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you share my enthusiasm for Alistair. Um, yeah, I think all I wanted to say, in it, just in addition to it, I, I just it, it does feel sad for Alistair as a way to punctuate his time in Excalibur that he's now being misinterpreted as Rory Campbell, who's like the yeah. least enthusiastic character ever and then the idea of him being the future ahab boss yeah again mm -hmm. i'm sad i like alistair stewart as a character and this isn't the nicest direction for him yeah it's not my favorite i mean again it could have been worse it could have just been one of those things where we forget about the character and he never comes back so i'm trying to grasp at straws here but like yeah i miss mm, i miss yeah. the character that he used to be for sure um mav coming back to you for some final thoughts anything you want to oh. bring up or circle back to yeah Okay. So we, we touched on this briefly, the fact that they they clearly don't know what's happening in the onslaught crossover and so they so they don't handle it. And I get that. That's editorial control. I cannot fault Ellis for that. My problem with it, and here's where um what makes me not like this issue. Cause I because even though with other than my intro, I've mostly talked about stuff that I really like here. Excalibur as a book is founded upon the idea that one day four people and their Kurt, Kitty, and well, three people, Kurt, Kitty, and Brian, and to a lesser extent, Megan, because she, because she was Brian's girlfriend, Rachel wasn't around, had the worst day of their lives when they had to watch their friends die on television along the other side mm -hmm. of the world. And it ruined Brian's life. I mean, 
Kurt yeah. tried to kill himself. Kitty was miserable. Brian, like it literally watching Brian, watching his twin sister die on television ruined his life. And the fundamental premise of this issue is, nah, that's all right. Just let it happen again uh, yeah, because the okay, world yeah. needs you. And that is a flaw for me in the writing. Like I understand Moira's point. And given the context of this book, she is 100% right. She should have that point. And Moira has taken Chuck's words to heart. And we are the new guardians of this dream. We've got to be here. I Like, I understand where she's, where she's at. Kitty and Kurt, and especially Brian, are not going to do this again. Brian would have flown there himself. There's, there's nothing that they could have done to stop him, plane or no plane. Like, I just don't believe that, you know, they were willing to fly across the Atlantic just to chase Rachel during Inferno. There is no way that he is willing to let, you know, and yes, I realize she ends up being fine. But for all he knows, Betsy is about to die again. And I don't care how injured he is. He just he just wouldn't do it twice. It doesn't make sense for him. And it doesn't make sense for Kurt and Kitty to just be like, nope, we're going to. And, and Peter, you know, Peter teleported there, you know, the first time. <laughs> like that's you know, so like so that's my that's my flaw with this issue. And that leads into a, a bunch of what we're going to talk about at the end with the with the onslaught stuff, because it's sort of a. It's one of the things that it's broken about the entire Onslaught crossover, which is dumb to start with. But given the gravity that we want this to be, we, the writers, wanted this to be at Marvel. So I should say they, not we, because I didn't have anything to do with it. Given where they <laughs> wanted it to be, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, even for Moira, Moira is, you know, it, it, she has to really, really believe this is the right thing to do to be like, you know, my quote unquote best friend is about to destroy the universe. So I need you to hang out here. That's kind of a, a bunch to swallow. But OK, I can I can get there for her. I can't get there for most of the rest of the team. Um, I don't know that I can get there for Rain, but definitely not Kurt, Kitty and, and Brian. Uh, I'm so yeah. glad you brought that up. Uh, that didn't occur to me as like a circling back. But now that you bring it up, like, ooh, there is such a missed opportunity there to more directly circle it back. And at least if they, they're going to be like, we're making a different choice this time or having a different reaction because we're at some different place or something, it just would have been nice to have that sign posted, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. even if even if Moira just stops them and says, yeah, I know you've done this before, but I need you to do yeah, it again. Yeah, like yeah. if you're gonna, something. But like the fact that he's just like, oh, you're right. I guess we're just going to watch on tv you've done this before and again it ruined your life yeah it's too passive i agree Ugh, that's frustrating <laughs> that's one of those things where i was like i wish you hadn't brought that up because it makes me like the issue less but it's what i noticed what and that's why and that's, and, <laughs> yeah. well but that's why when i read it the, when i read it i'm like yeah hey, like i said this clearly wasn't thought through there was no yeah. plan here and i think the reason there's no plan is because i don't think ellis knows how bad the onslaught crossover not in bad like writing wise i don't think he understands the terms of it because i don't think they told him and you can tell by the mm -hmm. fact that like even the news reports are oh we've got news coming in and what we know is that captain america is there that mm -hmm. that's what they've got that's there that's what we know about the story the x-men are involved and here's a picture of captain america that they use twice because they because he literally doesn't know how this battle is going down yeah. <laughs> and that and that's kind of my mm -hmm. problem with it yeah no that's that's, yeah, that's fair super fair mm -hmm. um laura coming to you for some final thoughts anything you would like to circle back to or bring up that we haven't got enough of a chance to talk about yeah i think like the one the one thing is that closing speech that kind of keeps them all kind of in status quo for me doesn't hit home as much as maybe it should and mm -hmm. Not even necessarily like it like it just doesn't seem to be coming from the right person. Like I think that if you're gonna have a we need to make a smart decision here speech for whatever reason and staying here is allegedly the smart decision, I don't understand why it's Moira giving that speech. Like I think that she has a right to be like, No, I'm going to stay here and kind of build out Xavier's dream and create a new safe space or create whatever she's creating, but to keep everybody else in line when she just doesn't seem to have what I would say is that level of authority. Like I would want something more than just a like, yeah, okay, coming from Nightcrawler or coming from Brian or coming from somebody else. Like it just seems out of place that it's her that keeps them there for me, which is the one thing I wasn't a huge fan of. The rest of the issue, great. The last three pages, I'm like, meh. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Because <laughs> it just, I don't know, it just, it seemed weird to have her be the one to do it. But yeah, that, that kind of was just the, the one downside. Everything else gets that down. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally fair. I feel like it kind of should have been one of the four original members of Excalibur doing that speech because I could buy any of them doing it. Like I could mm-hmm. buy like even have Kitty Megan do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even have Kitty Pride do it. Like if you really want like that strong female moment at the end, then give it to one of the la- other ladies. But having it come from Moira, just like it didn't hit for me. Like even the exact same speech from somebody else would have hit more for me than it did from her. Even if Megan yeah. grows, it becomes interesting. And then I know, again, I know, that's maybe, Me- yeah. maybe Megan can stop Brian. But again, everything I just said, Moira can't stop Brian from going to save his sister. Like no, that's not who. <laughs> that's not who he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that deference that they have to Moira doesn't read right to me that they would be like that. But I get it's just narrative necessity, but... Yeah, well, and even, like, have a character like Megan who has, like, some history of, like, trauma and abuse and other things be the person that has a cool head in a moment of trauma. Be the person that can actually handle that situation. Then it hits home more for me. It grows her character. It develops a lot of the relationships way better than the choice that they made. No, no disagreements there. My final thought was going to be about, and I know Mav wants to talk about this a little bit well as well. Let's restrain ourselves and not get too much down the rabbit hole of it. But we get a Heroes Reborn preview sure. at the end of the comic. And we get a couple of snapshots of things. We get uh, some Wills Portacio art, I believe, um, of Iron Man, uh, some opening pages, which is just incredibly weird. Like there's this splash page of, and it's like actually a really nice splash page, but it says it's tells me it's bruce banner looking down on the action with this just outrageous emo haircut that it looks great but i'm like bruce now i have not read this comic book oh oh my god (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i have not read heroes reborn iron man i jumped in uh back when disassembled happened oh my god okay (laughs) so again i don't want to go down the rabbit hole of it too far But um, but what struck me about the little preview was just like the scene that we get is just a drawing of a guy just shooting the hell out of some people. And I'm like, that uh-huh. was really violent and not very superhero-y. <laughs> and okay, have fun with that, kids. And I'm not trying to be a moralist about it, but that was really violent. And then I just was thinking about the Liefeld art and how desperate it feels at a time. So the other one we get is, you know, Liefeld okay. on Avengers and it's typical Liefeld art, whatever. But it's just, we'd moved on from those styles circa 1996. Oh, like this is God. not the cutting edge anymore. And Mav and I were talking about it a little bit before the pod. And I was talking about it with Adam too. Just, it seems so desperate. And you're saying so that desperate. it seemed very desperate at the time as well. Right? Absolutely. Oh my, well, Andrew, you were reading it this time, right? Cause I was yes. definitely reading at this time. The, the, the image guys left under not the best circumstances. For any involved, like they were bitter and rightly so, by the way. But like after after everything that had happened that, you know, they ran Claremont out and then they found out the grass wasn't as much greener as they thought it was. And they left to form image, which was probably the right thing to do at that time. And given where image became as a publisher, I'm glad they did. They did a lot for creators. Right. Marvel is in a very, very complicated time and in their history right now. So this book has a cover date of, I believe August. Is that where we're at? We're at for this issue that we're on September. Yeah. September. Okay, so September of 96. So two months earlier. So it is in real time as this book's coming out. It's July. Heroes Were Born will be cover dated in November. So in real time, September of 96 is when these issues that they're um, that they are promoting are coming out. And I remember that everybody being like, we know Marvel's in, in trouble. And when I say Marvel's in trouble, if you were not reading comic books back then... And to understand the company that is the MCU giant, the we run entertainment, we are part of Disney, we are the biggest movies in the world. That world was unthinkable. Without exaggerating, in August-ish of 1996, Marvel Comics is selling their furniture 
on the front lawn of the building in order to make payroll. And no, I am not joking. It's dire. They're not paying artists and writers because they have no money and they're literally selling furniture and office equipment. Certain people, uh, like there's literally artists and writers who are doing the number one selling comic books in, in America and are homeless. <laughs> there are are literally not like living on the streets. It's bad. It it is a very 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 bad and precarious space, and the industry is clearly about to contract because of all of the constant gimmicks. And we know that the speculation bubble is going to burst. And being a comic book fan, you could I mean you could tell that it was going to fail real real soon. And then in December of 1996, now remember these launch in September in real time, cover date in November. In December, early December 1996, Marvel Comics will declare bankruptcy and fundamentally change the industry right at the beginning of this. So yeah, it seemed real desperate even though like it's hard to say that it, they moved on because because the image books really were selling really well and maybe marvel had like in retrospect they were trying to do something else but they were in really really precarious hands to where you know when you're selling office furniture to make payroll then maybe you do go i don't know these guys were selling a whole bunch of books three years ago so let's try it it was a hail mary pass I just find it. Yeah, I mean that it's sort of like that whole story is communicated through the art, though. You know, like, yeah. Just, yeah. It's yeah. It's it, and it seemed desperate. Like a like there were there were think pieces appearing in Wizard of what the hell's going on? Mm -hmm. You know, like because it's not like Jim and Rob were giving up their spots in Image in order to do this. Mm -hmm. Rob would leave Image later, but that was unrelated to this. They were, you know, this is this is clearly hey. Two of the guys who are running the direct competition that is putting us out of business, we're going to give four of our flagship titles to. Thanks for that. It was definitely an interesting time in comics, the biggest euphemism ever. To keep the positivity rolling, I'm going to close this off with a letter. I thought initially we didn't have a letter column, but we do, in fact. I just didn't have it in my <laughs> digital copy. It is the most hard-to-read letter column in the entire world. i just describing it for our listeners. It is army green with like a spray paint abstract expressionist pattern and then black text on top of that. Just really great design choices on this letter column. I will do the best to read this short letter. So this letter is from Janet Winters. Hey Excalibur people, re-issue 97. I'm not actually writing to talk about the story, which was totally excellent. In fact, kudos to the whole team who made this comic. I'm actually writing about Jeff Cozy's letter in the previous issue of Excalibur. Death to Megan? I don't think so. If you have to kill off a character, May I suggest Colossus? Yeah, I know he just joined the team and everything, but he has no real position here. He even tried to kill his teammate when he kissed Kitty after he left her. And in my eyes, he's still a traitor. He joined Magneto at his sister's funeral by sucker punching Bishop in the back. Way to be, Janet. Way to say what we're all thinking. Kudos to you. <laughs> Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin? I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. Anyway, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Laura, thank you so, so dearly for returning after your two-year absence. I hope you had as good of a time chatting with us as we had chatting with you. If you would like folks to find you online, whereabouts can they find you? And yeah, any past, present, future projects you'd like folks to look out for? Yeah, uh, I am at LL Grafton in all of the online places. And folks should definitely check out the stuff I have over at... Uh, uh, women write about comics there's some older stuff there that's still amazing and that is probably where a chunk or two of my thesis will land once i finally have nice. it wrapped up so. <laughs> nice love it i will definitely link some of your work there and yeah just thanks so 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 much again for coming back to us laura oh so happy to be back it's always a pleasure 
next we're back to pride and wisdom spy shenanigans and excalibur number 102 after the bomb in which new threats rear their heads in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out the fab youtube videos which we've done for many of our earlier episodes you can find those via our website or the vox podcast youtube channel plus our holiday specials as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and i usually respond to comments and via twitter <laughs> at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras i sometimes forget to check the comments and i apologize to those of you that i've kept waiting for weeks and weeks anyway thank you mav and andrew for another peaceable convo thank you laura for decompressing with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought form music for a truly epic theme song play us out i just really hope you saved the bit where you said that pete kisses pete at the beginning <laughs> I, I, want that, I, I want that to be the outro like, clip here. <laughs>